0: Welcome to the Church 214 Podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Before I get started, um, before we continue our Revelation series, I'd like to make a statement. Um, For the last six weeks, Uh, the school street barn swallows, that's a local street gang, have have started to uh, attack me. Uh, Their attacks increased in earnest uh, yesterday while I was trying to mow the yard and I was trying to mow the yard quickly so that I could get up to my office and prepare this message. And so as far as I'm concerned, barn swallows can go to the gates of hell and stay there. <laughs> and we're going to we're 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 attacking the spirit of Jezebel today in the letter to Thyatira and as far as I'm concerned those barn swallows are from Jezebel. Are under the influence of that spirit and I reject them. We have lived in our house for 3 years and now they have decided to attack me. So, I am not happy. About the barn swallows, I barely made it through, uh, but I did prevail. Uh, so you get to hear the word of the Lord from me today. And thank you, Marv. Glory. That's right. There, there's plenty of video evidence. It's, it, we didn't get it added a few. But 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 no. But here's why. But here's, but here's why. Because for the first time ever, I am going to submit a series idea to uh, Heather, the leader of our teaching team. Its uh, working title is Birds of a Feather. Uh, I, I came up with... I literally, as I was chasing birds with a shovel yesterday, I, came, I started to come up with preaching points. <laughs> One week for sure is going to be on barn swallows, and I think there will be some other encouraging ones too, but I've got like four weeks minimum for this bird series. So wait for, the, wait for a further discussion on that. And, in, and when we do this series, you will see the videos. They're hilarious. I look like a complete... Idiot, but um, hey, I had to get my yard mode so I could get the preaching done. So um, we're, we're going to continue our series in Revelation, and just by way of quick review, we're in the middle of the letters, right? And they're not just letters, they're prophetic oracles, similar to what the Old Testament prophets would consistently give the Israelites, right? And they're for us, but they're not to us, which means we have to first understand the historical and cultural context. Of those letters. What did the letter mean to those people in that place at that time? Once we answer those questions, we can start to say, okay, if that stuff is true, what might be true for me? And we have started to see some common themes in the letters. We will continue to see them. The first sentence is always a picture of who Jesus is. And then next, usually there's a description of, hey, these things are going well. Good job, guys. And then the next part is, these things are not going so well. You need to repent of those things. And then the last part is, if you repent of those things, right, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, here is the piece of the eternal reward that will be waiting for you. Right? So before we get into the letter at all, we're going to look at the historical and cultural context for the city of Thyatira. And since Heather was so gracious to allow me to help her with her map last weekend... I'm going to need Heather to come up and help me with my map this weekend. Come on. Yeah, I'm serious. Did I stutter? All right. So this, there you go. This is modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia back in that time. You can see all of the churches in Revelation listed there. Heather, can you please show us where Thyatira is? It's spelled differently in this particular map. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I better get out of the way so you, everyone can see you. Yeah, thank you. So Thyatira was lo- was a military colony originally, and it was located at a strategic crossroads between Sardis, Pergamum, and Smyrna. Very important location. Th- thank you, Heather. That's all. <laughs> thank, you. thank you, thank you. That's it. That's it. Yeah, thank you. I love, love you. Love uh, you. It was a strategic military location at first in the third century B.C. Then in the second century B.C., a bunch of different people groups fought for control it, over it, and it changed hands several times. And as a result, the people—you can put the map away. Sorry. I love maps. I love using my big chalkboard up here like a teacher. Um, at, as a result, the people of Thyatira became very used to, it was, it was just normal that they would have new cultures coming in all the time and culture and religion would just be mixed together, constantly mixed together. In fact, the patron god of the city, now buckle up for this one, okay, the, the name of the god of the city was Helius, let me get it right, it's too long, Helius Pythius Tyremnaeus Apollo. Now, can you imagine praying like your prayers like at the dinner table? You know, like that's, that's a lot. That's a word salad right there. Now, it was basically the Greek god Apollo, but it was a mixture of Lydian and Macedonian and Greek gods like all smashed together. And people say that Yahweh is hard to understand. I mean, come on, give me a break. It was most famous for its purple dye industry. Purple dye was used to make purple cloth. Now, who buys purple cloth? Royalty. You will see that theme come out in the letter. Okay? It would have spoken directly to the people of Thyatira. It's almost as if Jesus knows what he's talking about and who he's talking to. Okay? In the ancient ruins of the city, this is actually the modern-day city of Akisar in Turkey. So people have lived in this area for over 2,000 years. Now, the ruins of the city are still there, and there's been a lot of of archaeology uh, research done there, and they found many inscriptions that talk about what are called trade guilds in the city. And, of course, the purple dye trade guild being the most prominent of them. Now, the the word trade guild in English isn't the best word to go from Greek to English. The best translation is actually the word syndicate, which gives it a little bit of a mafia feel, and that will come out (laughs) in a little bit. They acted a little bit more like mafias than just farmers. But uh, we've studied all of these inscriptions in the ruins, and we've actually found evidence of more trade guilds or syndicates in Thyatira than any other Roman city in Turkey. Yet it was the smallest of the cities. We've seen, we found descriptions of bakers' guilds, slave trade, leather workers, and bronze smiths, which will also show up in the letter. In these cities, almost everything was sold in specialized marketplaces. Now, think your modern day farmer's market, except now it's just kind of trendy and cool. Back then, it was like the only place you could go to buy stuff, and they were under strict control of the syndicates, very strict control. And market days were scheduled primarily around religious festivals. Because you would have an influx of people from out of town. You would have an increase in feasting. You would have an increase of sacrifices at the local temple. And food was very perishable back then, especially meat. Meat was the most perishable because, of course, they didn't have refrigeration or freezers. So, this demand, or supply, excuse me, supply had to be scheduled way in advance to account for these spikes in demand. And the local temples were the, by far, highest demand, most consistent demand because you need a lot of live animals to do the pagan sacrifices, and then the fresh meat would go to the marketplace. And if we leave the pagan stuff out of it, if you were going to run an ancient city as efficiently as possible, this is how you would do it, just to feed people. This was by far the most efficient way to do it because you're killing the animals anyway. At least we have a reason and a place to do it. A lot of times the marketplaces would be close to the temple because why not? Okay? If you lived in a city with one or multiple temples, you'd have all kinds of meat options. The only problem is if you were a Jew or a Christian, almost all of it, if not all of it, was sacrificed to idols. That's a problem. The trade guilds had policy, strict policies for membership. That included regular participation in pagan worship and sometimes outright sexual immorality. Now, if you were a Jew or a Christian, you could say, I'm not gonna participate in that. No problem, you wouldn't be a member of the trade guild. But guess what? You could not participate in the marketplace as an entrepreneur. And if your meat options were only sacrificed to idols, you kind of were on your own. You had to sustain yourself. The only meat you could harvest that was okay for you to eat was probably harvested from animals that you owned. But if you lived in a city, that means you didn't have a bunch of pasture to pasture to have a bunch of animals. And only really wealthy people would have large herds. And so, are we tracking yet? This is a difficult situation. And remember, the trade guilds didn't just control meat. They controlled Everything, anything you bought, came from these trade guilds. So if you were a Christian or a Jew, living in one of these cities, and you held to your convictions, you could not participate in wider society. And we have it worse. Right now, I live, we live right down the street from a Walmart, an Aldi, a Menards, multiple gas stations. And guess what the only requirement for membership is at those places? Money. They don't care wh- who I am, where I came from. I just have to have enough money to pay for the stuff that's in there. It was difficult to live in Thyatira. Really difficult. Lastly, it was by far the smallest of the seven cities. Only 25 to 30,000 people were there, and I love that because, you know, we are used to small town. When we think small town, let, let's just have a family moment, real quick. Small town, Midwestern America, right? When I said that, all of these images came into your head, right? More churches than stores, maybe not even a stoplight. And I, I grew up in Morton and Tremont, so I can speak with authority on this. Okay tends to be conservative, usually votes Republican, right? Everyone's nice and everyone basically is Christian, basically goes to church. Yet when you read this letter, it's pagan worship and outright sexual immorality. You're like, ooh, that stuff happens in like New York and Chicago and Las Vegas and stuff and LA. That's not really here in small town America. And John wrote this letter and he's saying, hey, I don't care if you live in a small town. That stuff can squeeze its way in really fast. So with that in our heads, now let's read the letter. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Pause. There was a bronze smith trade guild in the city, wasn't there? And what do you need to make bronze aside from metal? You need fire. Speaking right to the people of Thyatira. Right? Now this imagery is really intense, right? This is a continuation of the description we get in, first, in, in chapter 1. I almost said first revelation. There's only one. Uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. There it says in, 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 in lowercase letters, one like a son of man. Now, if you haven't been in church very long, if you haven't studied the Old Testament in detail, that is kind of an ambiguous phrase to you. And that's okay. No judgment here. It says one like a son of man, and then we get long white robe, golden sash, hair white like wool, eyes like flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, uh, voice like the roar of many waters. Freaking awesome, right? Right? Some of that imagery is copied and pasted into the beginning of this letter, right? Eyes like flame of fire, fire, feet like burnished bronze. But instead of saying one like a son of man, it says son of God in all caps. Now, anyone who's read any of the New Testament knows that son of God, all caps, is definitely Jesus. That phrase is never used to describe anybody else. So what John's doing is he's saying, hey, that one like a son of man, and just just in case it was not clear, it's the son of God who is Jesus. Now the imagery, John didn't just make that up, and he didn't just see it in a vision. He had read about it before. He got that from the Old Testament, the First Testament. What are we going to call it? First Testament. It's not old. It's amazing. Daniel chapter 7. A terrifying passage. You have these descriptions of these terrible beasts and thrones and beasts and more thrones and terif- terrible beasts and terrible thrones. And then Daniel looks higher and higher and higher because that's what you're supposed to do too. He looks higher until he finally sees the Ancient of Days seated on the highest throne. Okay? That is the Ancient of Days is Yahweh. That's God the Father. If we're going to be very, very specific, it's God the Father. And all the imagery of God the Father is long white robe, white hair, fire, lightning, all of the same stuff, right? And then it says in verse 13, one like a son of man, who we've established now is Jesus, right? Is presented before the ancient of days, and to him was given all dominion and authority, and his kingdom shall be without end, right? That could only be Jesus, right? So John took that imagery, copied and pasted it into first, uh, the, gosh, first Revelation, chapter one and chapter two of Revelation. But that imagery is not being used, that was used to describe God the Father, and Daniel is now being used to describe the Son in Revelation one and two. And that's really, really important that John does that, because here's what John is saying when he does that. This man, Jesus, I know him. I lived with him. He he looked just like me, but he wasn't just a man. He wasn't just the best preacher ever. He wasn't just the greatest prophet ever. He wasn't just the son of God, and believe me, we need him to be the son of God, do we not? He's not just the son of God. He is equal to Yahweh in every way. This is Trinitarian language. This is is where we get the Trinity from. Okay? This is a closed-handed issue, fundamental concept. We do not accept alternate theories about the deity of Jesus. We reject every alternate explanation for this. Categorically false. That is what John is saying here. That's just the first verse let's keep going. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Woo, that's awesome, right? You started off good and the trend is up, right? Which is in contrast to Ephesus, right? Ephesus started off good and you've lost your first love. We're tailing off. So Thyatira, man, we are firing on all cylinders. That's the good part, right? Imagery of Jesus, block number one. Block number two, here's what you're doing well. Block number three, here's what's not going so well. Let's keep going. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Let's stop there. Remember that in Thyatira, it was widely accepted that culture and religion was going to be mixed together in this diversity soup, right? And back then, tolerate kind of meant tolerate to a point until you bumped up against the syndicates, right? And then you're out. And we kind of know what that feels like now, don't we? Tolerance isn't on the line anymore. The very definition of the word love has changed. To love someone, I must celebrate everything about them and every single thing they do. And if I don't do that, it is the most grievous sin I could commit against another human being. That's the standard now, right? Jesus understood it then. He understands it now. Now, this statement, I gave her time to repent, but she did not, is a very important one. Because this passage right here, this verse, is like by far and away, the number one that like, oh, spirit of Jezebel, and here we go, and phew! Like, let's talk for two hours about the spirit of Jezebel. And the people that do that with this verse are right to do that, but there's actually more going on here than just the spirit of Jezebel because spiritual entities do not get a chance to repent. Okay? This is an entire message that I cannot get into right now. If you would like to discuss more, Come find me afterwards or wait for the series where we talk about this. But for now, just trust me that spiritual entities do not get a chance to repent. Only humans do. So that means we are talking about real people. It's not just the spirit of Jezebel. There's real people here. There wasn't a specific person in the church named Jezebel. But the person or people in the church that were trying to mix the holy and the profane are being compared to the the historical Jezebel of the Old Testament and, John is saying, they were coming into agreement with the spirit of Jezebel in the physical realm and were being influenced by that spirit. And this is John's way of telling us to go back and look at the Old Testament. So we're going to do that. Most of the message is actually going to be in 1 Kings. Little did you know that in Revelation we would spend so much time in 1 Kings. Because we've got to look at the historical Jezebel to understand how we're going to deal with the spirit of Jezebel in the physical and spiritual realms today. So, 1 Kings 16. I'm not going to read a ton of verses. I'm going to kind of summarize stories, but it might be helpful if you follow along. So, I'll give you a little chance to turn to 1 Kings. Towards the end of the chapter, like uh, verse 30-ish, you can flip to it or digitally scroll to it. At the end of chapter 16, it says that Ahab married the daughter, uh, Jezebel, the daughter of the king and priest of Sidon. And the Sidonians worshipped Baal and Asherah. So, lo and behold, next verse, Ahab built a temple and an altar to Baal, as well as an altar to Asherah. Okay? Now, when this happened... Worship of Yahweh was not banned outright at first. Now, again, we'll get to this later. There is an end to the tolerance. It was just, Baal and Asher were just added in. Just do whatever you want. Tolerance. Okay? And you might say, okay, the the king and queen, they're kind of off track, but the rest of us will still worship Yahweh. The only problem with that is it literally never happens that way, ever in human history. Tolerance leads to compromise, which leads to infiltration, which leads to rejection of what you know to be true and acceptance of what you know is not true, and then you convince yourself that that is now true. And and if that sounded confusing, it's because it's supposed to sound confusing. Now, here's some confusing stuff about Canaanite religion that I'm going to try to break down for you. The highest god in Canaanite religion, his name was El. His title was the Most High, which is convenient because that's Yahweh's title, Most High. El was pretty much uninterested in human affairs, so, Baal, who was kind of the second most powerful God, was the most powerful God in Canaanite religion that was actually involved in human affairs. So, at times, he would have the title most high as well. And this led to some weird new beliefs, right? Because if, if El and maybe Baal are the most high in Canaanite religion, and Yahweh is the most high in Israelite religion, when you start mixing those two together, here's what happens. Asherah, was the wife of El in Canaanite religion. When those two gods move over to Israelite religion, the Israelites started to worship Asherah as the wife of Yahweh, mixing the profane with the holy. Thyatira dealt with this too, with the people inside the church mixing profane and holy. We're dealing with this now, and I could give you a billion examples. I will give you one. Has anybody heard of the Sparkle Creed? Okay. It is a new, twisted version of the Apostles' Creed. Here's some of the statements in that creed. God is non-binary, whose pronouns are they? Jesus had two dads. Love is love is love is love is love is love. Okay? Now, this heresy and I do call it heresy, I don't use that term lightly, privately or publicly, but that's what it is. This heresy is not coming from some newfangled Hollywood churchy thing. These heretical demonic ideas were recited in a Lutheran church in Kentucky a couple of months ago. Kentucky, by the way, is like one of the reddest states in the union. These heretical, demonic ideas are a textbook example of telling the text what to say and making it say what you want to say. And if you remember my last message, that's not what we do with the text. We ask good questions of it. We don't tell it what to say. We don't make it say what we want it to say. So, how do we respond to that? 1 Kings 17, chapter 1, the very next verse. Now Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Notice he does not address Ahab's authority at all. Ahab's the king. But who's he standing before? Yahweh. Yes. Neither do nor reign. These uh, neither dew nor rain shall fall these years except by my word. And you might say, okay, so what? Uh, Baal controlled the weather in Canaanite religion. So if there was a drought, it meant one of two things. Baal was absent and did not care that the people that worshiped him were suffering, which is an indictment in and of itself. Or Baal wasn't powerful enough to control the weather. Because Yahweh is, in fact, in control. And these are not Elijah's ideas. He is the voice of Yahweh in this moment. So this is not Elijah talking. This is Yahweh speaking. So Yahweh is saying, hey, I'm in control of the weather. And it was a direct challenge to Baal's authority and power in the spiritual realm, which makes sense because Tyre and Sidon to the north, that's Baal's territory. Israel is Yahweh's territory. But what was Baal doing? He was... Pushing in to Yahweh's territory in Israel. So Yahweh says, okay, here we go. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. And then what did Elijah do? He aligned himself with that challenge in the physical realm. And there was no sugarcoating. It wasn't long and drawn out. It was direct, simple truth. Offering up a better way. It wasn't just, just condemnation. When, when, when Elijah said that, here is also what he was saying. Hey, Baal's not the most high. Yahweh is the most high. And if he can defeat Baal, if he can control the weather, it might be worth listening to the other things that he has to say. Because by the way, Ahab, if you recall the entire history of our people, it turns out that God has a pretty good track record of taking care of us. And if we obey him these blessings tend to overflow from generation to generation. And when we don't obey him, man, things go really bad. Have you read the book of Judges lately? Like, what about the Israelites in the, in the wilderness? There's a better way. And then God calls Elijah. and So he's directly threatening the king. So he's now blacklisted and he's got to leave, right? So God calls Elijah to live in the country, and he tells him, hey, ravens are going to take care of you. They're going to feed you there. I like ravens. (laughs) I'm still good with ravens. Um, I kind of have to be. So not tolerating Jezebel means that you are going to live like an outsider in society, but God is going to take care of you by unconventional and supernatural means. No doubt this was happening in in Thyatira. No doubt this was happening. No doubt this is happening now. Was, is, and is to come. Already, but not yet, tension happening here. Let's keep going. Jesus acknowledged their tough situation, and he still called them to a higher standard. I know it's difficult to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. We'll get to that. First Kings 18. The tolerance ends because in two, within two chapters, Jezebel has killed all of the prophets of the Lord, except for a hundred that were hidden by another faithful man named Obadiah, and then Elijah. So there's like 101 left. There used to be hundreds, maybe even thousands, and she kills almost all of them. So the tolerance ends very quickly. Despite that risk, God calls Elijah out of the wilderness. It's time. And Elijah confronts Ahab directly to his face, despite the risk to his life. It's not like Ahab was just strolling through the woods. He was a king. He was in a chariot, most likely, or on a horse. He was probably surrounded by 10, 20, maybe 100 soldiers. Elijah is begging to be killed at this point with this kind of a move, okay? Okay. They could have just shot him without a word. Speared him without a word. Cut his head off without a word. But the Lord was on his side. 1 Kings 18, 17 through 19. I love this exchange. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Listen very carefully. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. You see, the spirit of Jezebel will mock you and blame you for every problem in society and in the church. And the church tends to just lay down and take it oh, we're so sorry. And you know what? Some of those accusations from the world and from within the church are warranted. If you're humble enough, you can learn from anyone. There might be some grain of truth to, hey, listen, we, we, we maybe need to do a better job of loving people, welcoming them, taking care of them, ministering to them, discipleship. We can always get better at that stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. When the world says, Who's, by the way, who leads the world? Who's in charge of the world? Who's in authority? Okay, the devil. So the devil speaking through the world accuses the church of all of these problems in society and oh, you're doing this and you're not doing that and diversity and you're not loving and all of this stuff. Wait a second. What, what, why, why do they get a say? Why? No, why do they get a say? Should they be telling us how to run the church or should the Lord be telling us how to run the church? Are we reading the book that tells us how to do this? that tells us how to love people, that tells us how to follow him? Or are we going to say, oh, I'm so sorry you got offended? Like, who are we listening to? We need to reject those lies and give simple truth back. Is it you, you troubler of Illinois? No, you have troubled Illinois. Is it you, you troubler of Peoria? No, you have troubled Peoria. Verse 19. Yes. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Heather talked about this last week. We're going to keep talking about it. This comment has nothing to do with food. You see a common theme in the letters. Hey, eating sacrifices to, uh, to idols keeps coming up in the letters. It has nothing to do with eating food. It's about where your loyalty is. Which table will you sit at? Will you sit at the table of the lesser gods in opposition to Yahweh who are destined to lose the war? Right? Elijah understood Psalm 23 very well. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And there are a thousand layers to that psalm. Someday we're going to do a series on Psalm 23, and we're going to have to spend an entire week on each verse of Psalm 23, I think. But here's the layer I want to pull out of that verse Are you going to remain faithful to me? Are you going to continue to sit at my table no matter how surrounded you are by your enemies? And here's what Elijah did. He was calling a battle on Yahweh's terms in Baal's territory. Now, you might say, hold on, Mount Carmel, wait a second. Politically speaking, Mount Carmel was inside Israel. But did you know that another name for Mount Carmel was Baal of the headlands? And it had long been associated as a sacred mountain of Baal, not Yahweh. So Elijah says, fine. Fine. Let's go to your home court. Let's go to your home court. Elijah was willing to make war anywhere, including a stronghold of Baal. And you know what? We are doing that here. For those of you that aren't aware, the, building, the last time this building was in use, it was a swingers club. Honestly, that was one of the things that helped us decide to buy it. Seriously. Okay. It's time to take some territory back and turn it around. It's time to push the darkness back a little bit. Push it back towards the gates of hell where it came from. It doesn't belong here. And you can, you can Google this. You can find some kind of national stories at the time when we bought this building and sort of started turning it into a church. It's kind of a big deal. And that's not to pat ourselves on the back. This is, we're obeying. This is the type of stuff that was going on in the spiritual realm when Elijah issued this challenge. And then Elisha purposely gives every advantage possible in the physical realm. 850 prophets, verses 1. He gives them all day to cut themselves and sing and cry and do all the stuff to get Baal to respond. He, le- he left himself no time for God to respond, which is plenty of time for God to respond. And then he soaked his altar in water so that there's no way it could possibly have ignited by natural means because he wasn't looking for natural response. He was looking for a supernatural response. And then God sends the fire down from heaven and vaporizes everything. Doesn't just sort of light it on fire. Vaporizes everything. We cannot simply withdraw to places where there is no evil because the kingdom of darkness will just show up on your doorstep again. We must advance on the kingdom of darkness and push it back to the gates of hell where it came from. And, and Elijah wasn't being reckless or arrogant. Just I didn't put it up on the screen. I should have. Just look at the prayer that he prays. They spend all day doing all this crazy stuff. He says one sentence. He bows his head with all humility. Lord, show up. Don't show up to make me look like an amazing prophet, like I have all of this power. He didn't say that. He said, God, Show yourself to us today so that everyone will know that there is a God in Israel and the pillar of fire descends. And, and we like to see these little supernatural pillar, oh, it's terrifying, pillar of fire. Oh, the Old Testament God is this angry, vengeful God. And If you read that passage and you think that that's an angry, vengeful God trying to scare his people into loving him, you are projecting onto Yahweh something that doesn't belong to him. Because here's what he's trying to tell you was trying to tell those people with that pillar of fire. Yes, I am holy. Yes, I am perfect. Yes, I have infinite purity. And yes, you need to approach me with reverence. But all those lesser gods who live far away in the universe, way up there in the heavens, who don't seem to care of anything at all about you, guess what? I'm seated on that throne as the Ancient of Days in front of the Sea of Glass, but I am choosing, despite my perfection and despite how big, the, infinitely big the gap is between you and I, I'm going to show up right here. Yeah, right. I'm showing up right here. Because you're my family. I just want you to come back to me. You remember the last time a pillar of fire showed up? You and I, Israel, We were walking through the wilderness together where the lesser gods have dominion. And I brought you through that wilderness through 40 years. And all you did was follow follow the same God, the same pillar of fire through that wilderness. And I'm trying to remind you of that time back then when when all you did was follow. Yes, you grumbled a little bit. And yes, there were some issues. But you followed the pillar of fire. And, And I'm trying to just come back to me. You're my family. Please come back to me. Immediately after the fire descends on the altar, Elijah kills all of the pagan prophets and the Lord sends rain, which Baal was unable to do despite being the storm god. Immediately after this, 1 Kings 19, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah, in t- the next day. And guess what? Right on schedule, Elijah freaks out. The greatest victory, like, of all time for his life. And, and 24 hours, he's running in fear because we would too. All the way out into the wilderness, he's almost dying of exhaustion. He, fall, he falls down under a, collapses in exhaustion under a tree, and he asks God to take his life. Within 24 hours, Elijah is suicidal. But he falls asleep. You see, the spirit of Jezebel will bring depression, exhaustion, and hopelessness, and you will stop taking care of yourself in the physical. But the Lord sends an angel. Didn't need to, chose to, because the angels are a part of his family too, and he loves them. He says, hey, I can do this myself, but I want you to help me. I want you to go take care of Elijah. Can you go do that for me? Probably did not even tell the angel what to do. He just said, hey, go go help Elijah. Figure it out. Go help Elijah. The angel shows up. Elijah wakes. He wakes Elijah up and says, hey, eat and drink. That's it. There's a loaf of bread and a jar of water. Elijah eats and drinks and falls asleep again. We don't know how long he slept. It could have been several days. You know, he was tired. Wakes up again. Another loaf of bread, another jar of water. Eat and drink, but the message continues. For the journey is too great for you. You got no chance. Elijah doesn't say anything. He eats the bread, drinks the water, and heads out into the desert for 40 days. No food or water after that. And he heads all the way to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. The solution to Elijah's problem was almost 100% physical. Did you catch that? Sleep, food, and drink. So if we are going to combat the spirit of Jezebel long term, we need to remember that we need to take periodically take extended rest, take sabbatical. If you notice, the leadership team and some of our staff have started to do that this year. It's been a while. In fact, we hadn't done it yet, <laughs> Right? He was on the mountain of Baal, waging war in the physical and spiritual realm. And immediately Jezebel comes after him in the physical and the spiritual realm. And Elijah faltered. He faltered. Didn't fail, he faltered. He took a break, got proper rest, proper nutrition, a little bit of supernatural help from an angel because that's what happens. And he has sustained for 40 days and nights. Right? Right? on the way to meet with Yahweh on the mountain of the Lord. Extended sabbatical, proper nutrition, sleep, take care of yourself, go to the mountain of the Lord. That angel for sure was one of those eyes of the Lord, right? From Second Kings 16.9, they go to and fro throughout the whole earth and strengthen those whose hearts are turned towards the Lord. Come on now. He gets to the mountain of the Lord and he meets Yahweh and Yahweh shows up in fire and lightning and earthquakes and strong wind. All of these, all of that imagery was Baal imagery. You see, you wage war directly with whatever the cultural norm is. You go directly at it and you say, no, this is not right. This is not of God. Baal is not the source of these things. God is the source of these things. Jezebel doesn't love you. She will destroy you. Satan doesn't love you. He will destroy you. God loves you. God will bless your life. God has a better way for you to deal with the suffering in this life. Let's keep going. Last example, 1 Kings 21. Lesser known story but huge, huge for us. There was a man named Naboth who had a beautiful vineyard and Ahab coveted, sinned and coveted the vineyard. Naboth didn't want to sell and so Jezebel calls a fast to Yahweh, right, and then she pays two men to accuse Naboth of cursing Yahweh and under Mosaic law, you get the death penalty for that. He's wrongfully accused and he is stoned to death. Ahab gets the vineyard. You see, Jezebel pretended to care about Yahweh's holiness and his law to get someone killed. You see, the spirit can operate through people within the church who will try to manipulate those around them to gain more authority and influence. Did you know that Jezebel means pure in Hebrew? It's ironic, isn't it? You're not going to always recognize this spirit with the pagan worship and the outright sexual immorality. It works from within the church too. It often partners with the spirit of religion to question everyone else's intentions and pushes for a more pure version of church this ministry, doesn't, it doesn't look like it's doing so well. It seems to be failing. You, should do, you shouldn't stop, stop doing that and do this over here. Or worship needs to look like this. The preaching needs to look like that. Why haven't you started this ministry? Yet? Oh, you know what? That's great. We've actually got a 1,000 things on the list to do. We would love for you to ha- lead that. Oh, no, no, I don't have any gifting in that. I just, I, like, oh, okay. Thanks, Jezebel. I don't want to help, I don't want to, I don't want to offer any solutions. I just want to point out all these things that I think are a problem. Thanks, Jezebel. Some other markers. Uh, they're very good at giving counsel and bad at receiving it. And I don't mean undisciplined or struggles to implement, because that's a different thing. We have give grace for that, right? I mean very authoritative and concerned about you. And dismissive, deflective, defensive, when any counsel might sort of start to move in their general area code? Does this person bring tension into the room? Do you feel exhausted after being with them? Do you bring tension into the room? Do people quiet down when you show up? See, I'm not saying these things are always 100% of the time proof of the spirit of Jezebel. I'm saying these are very strong indicators. And there's a difference. Some of you are willingly aligning with the spirit of Jezebel, and you need to repent. We love you. You need to repent. Some of you don't realize you're doing these things, Okay. And you're giving a foothold to Jezebel which is allowing her to influence you. To you, I also say we love you. You need to recognize what's going on. You need to become more self-aware. You need to call it what it is and you need to repent. So, when John says Jezebel, that's what's behind the statement. So let's head back to Thyatira. Revelation 2, let's, start, let's do 20 and 21 again. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. To practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols that gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, that statement of three things, whenever we always read that together as kind of one thing. And whenever someone brings up pagan worship and sexual immorality, it leaps off the page and we sort of forget about the other stuff. And that's understandable. And then the enemy sneaks this little change in the wording into your brain and you say, "Well, I don't openly endorse pagan worship." And I don't openly endorse sexual immorality. Well, it doesn't say that. It says tolerate. So what are you not speaking out against? What are you consuming? some of your favorite celebrities are openly endorsing overt sexual imagery in their content, overt demonic imagery in their content. Sorry, Taylor Swift. There's demonic imagery now. Dante Bo, the darling of the worship community the last few years, has started to embrace overt sexual imagery in his content. Tolerating Jezebel. Let's break it down even further because I think that first part calls herself a prophetess is the reddest flag, actually, of the three. You know, the Lord provides dreams and visions and authority and prophetic gifting. We don't manufacture it ourselves. Do we agree on that? Yes? Okay. Sorry, the I, I, message has gotten heavy. You can still respond. Okay? Okay? If you are genuinely prophetic, it will be obvious to everyone it just will. Elijah never called himself a prophet. He just did. He just did prophet stuff. He obeyed. See, if, 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 you, if, if someone assumes the title prophet or prophetess, again, not 100% proof, strong indicator. Okay? If you feel the need to call yourself prophetic, it's probably because you need to be recognized as such. And if you need to be recognized as such, that means you're needing authority and influence and you're trying to take it. That's the Jezebel spirit. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mine heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That's really strong language too. Interesting, the throwing language, right? Because you don't have to turn there, but in Second Kings 9, at the end of her life, Jezebel is defiant and unrepentant to the end of her life. And in Second Kings 9, she meets her end by being thrown out of a window and falling to her death. Okay. The sickbed here is actually just the word couch. But you have to understand that in, Greek, in Greco-Roman culture, people would recline on these couches around a table and have a meal. And then sometimes, afterwards, uh, they would be used for sexual acts. And that was a common and celebrated cultural norm at the time, 2,000 years ago. much different now so what john is saying here is like you think you're living your best life you think you're living your best truth you think you're enjoying unlimited freedom but you will receive the natural consequences of your actions Verse twenty-four. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Pause, John. Just like Elijah, plain and simple. All this stuff is satanic, deeply satanic. Not create. We're not being creative about what we call it. Okay, we're not. We're not. We're trying. We're not trying to make sure that that we don't offend people, he called it what it was at its core, in its fullness, and we must do the same thing. Otherwise, we too may be tolerating Jezebel. Now, we don't come into every single situation dialed up to 11 with guns blazing, right? We have to understand that we follow leading of Holy Spirit and obey, but that will include, so there will be some gentle interactions too, But we will also include direct, simple, strong, unfiltered terminology. Deeply satanic. Let's keep going. To you I say, it's going to get really good, guys. To you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. He's kind of referencing back to verse 19. Hey, remember your faith and your love and your service and your patient endurance, and those, of, like, those things, keep doing those things. Just, that's all you need. No other burden. Just keep doing that stuff. And, and, and again, those of you that have not embraced the deeply satanic stuff that these Jezebel-influenced people are trying to mix in with the church, again, just keep, just keep rejecting. Just keep pushing back. Just keep fighting back. I don't lay on you any other burden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not going to make this complicated for you. This is all you need to hold fast to until I come. And because the world wants to throw confusion into the mix and say that faith in Jesus is all about drowning in uncountable, oppressive rules, like the sickbed analogy, too, right? When in fact, the church, and the church has done a poor job of rejecting that and saying, actually, this is just how the universe has been designed. This is what we believe. You don't have to believe it. It's fine. But what we're telling you is this is how the universe is designed. And if you use something outside of its intended design, It breaks. And and, and so we have this wonderful walled garden of paradise that God has set up for us. And what he says is, I want you to live with me inside that garden and do whatever you want. Seriously. Do whatever you want inside the garden within these designed guidelines that I have set. This is how I made things work. That is ultimate freedom because he's giving you the whole cheat code. If you want the best life possible, I'm telling you how to do it. I'm telling you how I built your body to work. I'm telling you how I built marriage to work. I'm telling you how I built relationships to work. I'm telling you how religion, quote unquote, religion is supposed to work. I'm giving you all of the answers. That's ultimate freedom. That's ultimate love, is it not? You don't have to believe it. You don't have to follow it. It's, he's just there, he's just offering it to you. I don't lay on you any other burden. Verse 26, here we go. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has ears, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. There's a bunch of Old Testament references here. Daniel 7, Psalm 2, Isaiah 30, Jeremiah 19, the list goes on. You can't possibly read them all. John's pulling from these Old Testament references, which are all prophetic passages about the Messiah coming and receiving authority, and then bringing final judgment on those that reject him. But notice, notice here it says, it doesn't say Jesus is the one that receives authority. Although he does, says so to the one who conquers, that's you. That's the people in Thyatira. That's me. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. So if you hold, if you just I don't lay on you any other burden, just do those things. Just follow me. Okay? Push back against, fight back against that spirit of Jezebel. Do not tolerate it. Conquer that stuff. Hold fast, right? Keep my works until the end. You know what that means? That means continue in your believing loyalty for Jesus as the source of your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. You can reject it. You can believe for a time and then choose not to believe. John is saying, hey, continue in your believing loyalty to me and faith in Jesus as the only source of your salvation not in your works, not in anything else. The morning star, that's another, that's more imagery of authority, okay? This language is being used to describe us. If we conquer and endure in our believing loyalty, to the end, our final destiny is to receive authority from the Ancient of Days seated on the throne to rule over the nations alongside Christ, with Christ. That's pretty cool. So when we tolerate Jezebel, You're choosing to sit at a different table, a lesser table with lesser gods. Why sit at that table with lesser gods when you're supposed to rule over them, supplant them? What's better? Do you want to take counterfeit, and it is counterfeit, authority for yourself now and rule alongside those lesser gods now? Because it does feel like the world's winning, right? It does kind of feel at times, if you pay attention to the wrong sources, like the world is winning. Do you want to rule now? with them only to have that authority taken away from you later and receive eternal judgment later or do you want to continue to sit at that table prepared before you in the presence of your enemies and rule for eternity alongside Jesus and this is still already but not yet going on too because Yahweh's still in authority right now it might feel like the world's winning Yahweh's still in charge he's still seated on the throne he's not pacing in his palace, worried about what he's going to do. So you can start to use that authority now. So you're supposed to sit at the table now. Already but not yet, authority. Now, does this make us equal to Jesus or equal to God? No, I have to say that. Of course not. He give, but he does give authority and he takes it away. We don't inherit all of his attributes. But he can give any authority he wants to to anyone he wants to. So think of it this way. We get to participate with him in rulership. He does not need us to rule. He does not need the angels to help Elijah. He does not need us to have church. He does not need me to preach. He does not need you, any of you, to come here to do any of this. He doesn't need any of it. wants you, to do it. Do you have the power to heal someone? Do you have the power to save someone? No. Of course you don't. Does God need you to participate in those things? Does he need you to pray over that person for healing? Definitely not. Does he need you to pray with that person, the salvation prayer, so that they can be saved? Because certainly not. Does he want you to? Yeah. He wants you to participate now. Because he loves you. He's saying, I want you to be a part of my family and do all the things that being a part of a family entails. He's asking you to participate in a life here and now with such high integrity and purpose that no matter the level of suffering that comes your way, you will immediately stand up and say, it is worth the suffering. That's the point of these letters. That is the choice we face every single day as followers of Jesus. Stand on your feet. Bow your heads. God, right now we reject the spirit of Jezebel. It has no place in this room. It has no place in the lives of any of the people in this room. It cannot touch the families that are represented here in this room. There are those of us in this room that have willingly aligned ourselves with that spirit and we repent. Give us the courage and the humility to repent right now and do whatever needs to be done to resolve that situation. There are those of us that have unwillingly given a foothold to Jezebel. We also acknowledge that that is in fact what's going on. We receive your mercy and grace. And we open ourselves up to the love that this family in this room is anxious to pour out on those whose hearts are turning back to you. In this moment, God, you're drawing people to yourself. For the first time, you're drawing people to yourself for the 10 billionth time. You're asking us all to turn towards you again. Some for the salvation of our souls. Some because we just need to turn towards you. We need to turn towards you. We need to repent. And those of us that have been hurt or wronged by people under the influence of Jezebel. God, we, 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 we reject bitterness against those people. We recognize that they were under the influence of a spirit and we still love that person. We forgive that person because you don't want to lay any other burden on us. You don't want to lay the burden of bitterness on us. You don't want to lay the burden of someone else's salvation on us. Someone else is healing on us, but you love us so much, you are so kind to us that you desperately want us to embrace the family business of pushing back the kingdom of darkness and ushering people into your marvelous light. And give us the gift of participating in those ministries right now in this moment. And so if you need anything, Tell somebody, doesn't have to be a leader up here in the front, tell somebody and deal with it. Come up front, the altar is always open. We will take as much time as we need to conduct ministry, but there is ministry that needs to be done in this moment. God, we're so thankful that that pillar of fire showed up not to scare us, but to display your per- perfect love, your perfect holiness, your perfect purity, and that you would come all the way from that throne that we can't even hope to touch this side of eternity. And you say, I, 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 yes, I'm there, but I'm also right here. I am your father. I am waiting for you. I am begging you to come back to the family, to come back to me, to follow me, And I acknowledge as, as, as his child right now, me, Phil Schaefer, in 2023, that I need to be okay with whatever suffering comes my way from this moment to my last duck, my very last breath on this earth. I don't have to enjoy it, but I need to be able to frame that suffering in light of eternity and embrace that life that God has called me, that has called all of us to embrace of such high purpose and integrity that that we will immediately stand and say, "Ah, man, it was worth it. This suffering, it was worth it. It's gonna be so hard to be able to say that on a daily basis don't know what you're going through, but he definitely does. He definitely does. And he will provide for you the same way he provided for Elijah. So God, right now, would you speak to us? Would you give us open hearts to receive what you would have to say? Would we lay down our lives as living sacrifices to you? In Jesus' name,